This morning, we are going to be enjoying the final installment of the 2011 Summer Light Series. And uh, we have had a lot of fun together over these past weeks listening to these marvelous uh, outside guests. Uh, did any of you enjoy Marvin Wiley last week? Wasn't that fun with Marvin? I'm so glad that you could meet him. Uh, I went out to lunch with him afterwards, my wife, our wives and, and I together, and he just said, I want to come back. I love those people. They just embraced me. And he said, I heard some amens coming from the congregation. It was fabulous. So I was walking in this morning and uh, coming up the hallway, and I met a, a person with an unfamiliar face to me and said, hello, and why are you here? She said, I've heard about Dick Anderson, your speaker today, and I've come uh, to hear him. A friend of mine uh, goes to his church in Florida and I just want to come and hear him speak. Uh, Reverend Richard W. Anderson is no stranger to Christ Church of Oakbrook. Uh, he was with us as part of the Summer Light series a couple of years ago, and the response was so warm, we wanted to have him back again. Uh, Dick is a native of Belvedere, Illinois, has uh, uh, spent a lot of time in this great state. He attended Monmouth College and then went on from there to Yale University, which gave him great stock improvement in my book. Uh, Dick was the first person in history to earn at Yale, uh, at the same time, a, a degree in divinity and in music. An enormously gifted uh, singer. You should have had been sitting next to him as I was this morning to enjoy that. Uh, Dick went on to Hamburg, Germany, where he was an opera singer for six years. Uh, and then he returned to the United States and uh, went on to um, a pastoral ministry that has spanned 36 years. Uh, Dick has pastored uh, churches uh, right here in Illinois, out in Aurora and uh, Lombard. Uh, he has been a, a, a teacher and a preacher in many conference and church settings throughout uh, the great nation of America. Uh, Dick has also been involved in ministry in uh, faraway Los Angeles and uh, for the past six and a half years has been the senior pastor of the Palm City Presbyterian Church uh, in Florida. Uh, Dick presented his costume monologue of Abraham Lincoln here two years ago. If you didn't recognize him, it's just because he doesn't have the beard on. Uh, but that's just one of the many historical characters that uh, Dick's dramatic gifts have brought to life for people uh, throughout uh, these past years. He's also performed the characters of Will Rogers, Mark Twain, George Washington, Judas, Jesus, Peter, Paul, the Centurion, and for us Chicagoans, D.L. Moody. And uh, we'll have to have him back to put on a maybe, a, maybe you'll do a whole medley of those characters for us, fast change artist uh, that he is. Uh, Reverend Anderson um, and his wife Robin have five children and one grandchild, and uh, they delight in serving the Lord and being with his greater family wherever they go. So I hope you will let him know he's got brothers and sisters in this place by giving him a very warm welcome to the pulpit of Christ Church. Have fun. Thank you. Well, it is thrilling to be back here. Nobody recognizes me, right? <laughs> I belong to an association of Lincoln presenters nationally. There are 120 of us. And I am the only person that uses spirit gum to apply the beard. Everybody else looks like this year-round. Can you imagine, ladies, waking up in the middle of the night and going, Oh, that's right, I'm married to Abe Lincoln. <laughs> I remember when I would come back from doing Lincoln impersonations here in the Chicago suburbs, and I went to the Jewel Food Store in Aurora, 
and I was in the produce department, and this lady came up to me and sort of, you know, in a sheepish sort of way and said, Sir, I don't know if anybody ever told you this, but you look an awful lot like Abe Lincoln. <laughs> well, we have a lot of fun doing uh, those monologues. Uh, the, the, actually, Dwight L. Moody, I'm glad you mentioned that, because uh, the funniest experience I ever had doing Dwight L. Moody, I had a size 56 suit with padding, and I had a heavy leather beard. You put spirit gum on a leather-mounted beard, it weighs about eight pounds, and I could barely hold my head up like this, and my hair was colored white. And I walked by my own church secretary at First Presbyterian Church in Aurora, and honest to God, she didn't recognize me. What's even more frightening is she didn't see me as being that eccentric for the people around the Aurora Church either. <laughs> But anyway, it's lots of fun, and I am going to share with you a little bit of Abe Lincoln this morning, too, because uh, there are certain things about leadership by example that we can certainly learn from our 16th president. How many of you ever read Donald Phillips' book, uh, Lincoln on Leadership? Have any of you seen that book? If you have not read that book and you love to read those books by James McGregor Burns and others, I would really encourage that for you. I'm told that Bill Clinton read that on a regular basis. And I don't say that facetiously, I just announce that, even though Mr. Lincoln was a Republican, right? But it is a very, very fine book, and it has lots of practical applications for you as well. I I want to uh, just start out in a little bit of a light way with uh, a little humor. You don't mind a good joke, do you, on Sunday morning? I would suspect this service would have more humor, maybe, than some of the other services, but I'm probably wrong about that too. But this pastor was called to a church, first service, and he gets up on Sunday morning and he says, now I want to pledge to you that I'm going to be there for you in your good times, your bad times, your joys, and in your sorrows. And sure enough, he got tested right away. (laughs) A lady came to him in the receiving line and said, pastor, you know, you told us you'd be there for us, right? And our joys and sorrows and so on. He said, yes, I did say that. She said, well, I'm over at my house raising two little hellions. One's seven years old and one's five years old, and I want you to come over here, come over to my house tomorrow, and I want you to instill the fear of God in them. Well, you know, it's his first Sunday, and he thought, boy, I don't know. I didn't get any pastoral care training for a situation like this. So He just trusted the Lord. He got in his car. He drove over to the lady's house. Well, the seven-year-old heard the pastor was coming, so he went and hid, which left the five-year-old sitting across the kitchen table from this very intimidating pastor. And the pastor started in on the little guy. He said, do you know where God is? This little kid couldn't say anything. He was so frightened. So the pastor repeated it again. He said, do you know where God is? Well, the little kid took off running, went looking for his brother. He found him in the closet, hiding under some dirty laundry. He said, Jimmy, Jimmy, the pastor's here, and he thinks he's missing, and he thinks we've got something to do with it. (laughs) According to Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus is the same today and forever. Amen? Would you open up your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3. I opened up this scripture from what I originally thought I was going to do, but uh, we'll start with Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. And I've made it my custom, whatever my preaching text on a Sunday morning, I memorize it. And we're going to be preaching through Acts when I get back to 
Florida, I'm not looking forward to memorizing 80 verses of Scripture, but some of you know that's a mind-boggling task. But this morning it's very reasonable because it's 13 verses. But I can tell you, if you really want to change even your preaching life, your teaching life, your inspirational, your personal devotional time, you'd need to memorize Scripture. Incidentally, I came to this church for the very first time for an Alpha conference, And I think it was in uh, 2002, I was serving as an interim at the Lombar Church, and I just have really benefited from memorizing Scripture throughout not only my ministry, but obviously my entire life. At one point, I can honestly tell you, I knew 30 opera roles in three languages. So how much difficulty do you think it is memorizing the Bible in English would be then? Not that difficult. But listen for God's particular word to you this day from the New International Version. Philippians 3, 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if at some point you think differently... I love this line. That, too, God will make clear to you. He didn't say, don't worry about it. He said, just let let God do some work with you on that subject. And then he says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. You can only work with what you have, and we're going to be talking about maturity this morning. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And as I often tell my parishioners, don't stop reading just because it's a new chapter. You need to know what comes before the passage and what comes after it. In this case, it says, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Shall we pray? How can we keep our way pure, Lord? by listening to your word, by following your word, by being obedient to your word, 
I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And now may that same spirit be in us which was in Christ Jesus so that when we speak, we speak the truth. And when we listen, we listen with the will to understand and obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Abraham Lincoln was not born a king of men, but a child of the common people who made himself a great persuader and therefore a leader by dint of firm resolve, patient effort, and dogged perseverance. He slowly won his way to eminence and fame by doing the task that lay next to him, doing it with all his growing might, doing it as well as he could, and learning by his failure, when failure was encountered, how to do it better. He was open to all impressions and influences and gladly profited by the teachings of events and circumstances, no matter how adverse or unwelcome. There was no year in Abraham Lincoln's life when he was not a wiser, cooler, and better man than he had been the year preceding. Don't you love that? Wouldn't you like to be a wiser, cooler, and better man? Next time you have a birthday party in your family, And maybe it's a 70- or 80-year-old birthday, and the person says, well, it's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal. If you were Abraham Lincoln and it's your 80th birthday, you would say, you know what? I can pour all the previous 79 years into this 80th year. Have you ever thought about your life that way? You could be a wiser, cooler, and better person than you had been the year preceding. Now, this always is surprising to people Because Abraham Lincoln was moving in a wondrous way spiritually, especially during his presidency. And people say, well, now back in the 1830s, didn't he write a book as an infidel? Well, you know, do you want everybody to look at your spiritual journey from 40 years ago? I don't think so. I think it's basically the direction you're heading. That's what Alexander McLaren said, that great Scottish pastor. He said, it's not your spiritual victories on the road. It's where you're keeping your eyes focused. Don't just celebrate your spiritual victories. Oh, and your personal testimony from 50 years ago? Hasn't anything else happened in your life? We call these God winks in our church. Another good book for you to read is When God Winks at You by Squire Rushnell. These things that are not coincidences, people, they're of divine ordinance. And they have a purpose, if you're listening and paying attention. This is what Abraham Lincoln said when he issued a proclamation. This is not a speech. He issued a proclamation for a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Can you imagine that? My brother used to be president of the National Restaurant Association. Can you imagine his brother, the pastor, suggesting that we have a day of fasting. I don't think my brother would have appreciated that much. But this is what Abraham Lincoln said. If this isn't the most theologically profound statement ever made by a chief executive officer of the United States, I don't know who would have topped it. It is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord." 
the awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. Would that we had political figures today with that kind of theological mindset now, some people say to me, well, now, wait a minute, Pastor. Abraham never, Lincoln never officially joined a church. You know what? He probably dignified not joining church membership more than anybody in the history of the church. You know what he said? I have difficulty giving intellectual assent to the long list of creeds and doctrines, but I want you to know I would have gladly joined any church that had inscribed over its altar as its sole qualification for membership the words, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. Well, that church would I have gladly joined with all my heart and soul. I respect the church and what it stands for. It's a visible reminder to us all that we are a one-parent family. Isn't that profound? Can you say amen to that? And we just say, well, he never joined a church. You, you can't not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus that is profoundly intimate and deep unless you could walk with him daily, call on him, do you know what, he el what else he did? And it just got better. At the second inaugural address, two years later after this proclamation, the audience showed up a month before the end of the war thinking that this would be the union forever and down with the traitor speech. And you know what he said to the country? He said, we are all under a severe judgment for this war. 624,000 Americans were died in, that were perishing in the Civil War. And one out of every 17 Americans, I'm talking about women and children, not just soldiers, were either killed or wounded in that war. And yet because of William Wilberforce, that British hunchback parliamentarian, 30 years before, not one Englishman was lost for the cause of slavery in a war. Now that's pretty convicting. He said, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continues until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, as, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still must be said today the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. I was watching the Texas Christian Baylor Bear football game on Friday night. Boy, was that an exciting game. And I was reminded that one of the former football coaches, 
Grant Taff of the Baylor Bears, coined this expression. Great Christian motivational speaker. He said, I'm only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And by the grace of God, I will do it. Isn't that good? Amen? You know, you have so much power, so much available to you. And now let's talk about our scripture lesson today from the Apostle Paul. You know, every pastor has certain expressions that they use a lot in sermons as well as in pastoral care. And this is what I often say to the people I serve. I am one beggar showing you beggars where to find the bread of life, whose name is Jesus. He speaks here about maturity. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Now, in the King James Version, the word is, that is often used is perfect. God knew we would never make it in the moral perfection realm, so I'm never comfortable with the word perfect, but I like the word mature. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Knowing Christ, the power of the resurrection, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, and receiving for those of us who claim him and his salvation, we will experience the resurrection from the dead, and he will take these lowly bodies of ours and transform them into glorious bodies like his own. That should be repeated at every funeral service, Philippians 3.21. Now, when you are mature, what, what does that even mean? Maturity is the ability to postpone immediate gratification for the ultimate good. Or some people will say maturity is the capacity to say no at the right moment so people, especially your loved ones, will not be hurt in the future. And I'm sure you can think of temptation to sin where that would apply. A mature person will say no at the right moment. Now, one of the things I love about this passage of Scripture is it gives you insight into the Apostle Paul. You know what he said back in chapter 3, this chapter we're in, verses 5 and 6? This is what he said. You know, if anybody had spiritual merit badges, it's me. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But he said, that is all rubbish. That's all garbage compared to the righteousness that has come to me from God through my faith in Christ Jesus. That's all rubbish. Now, when you're mature, you could compare Two kings, King David and King Saul. Now, if I asked you who was the more mature, you'd probably have a tough time answering it, wouldn't you? Because King Saul did a lot of right things, but his biggest fault was he was prideful. His pride led to his melancholy. His pride led to his despair, his depression. And unfortunately, King Saul never humbled himself before the Lord. That is one of the greatest attributes of being a mature person. If you have never read and followed the series Lead Like Jesus by Ken Blanchard, 
He said, humility is not thinking less of yourselves, it's thinking of yourself less. That's a big difference. King David could be characterized as a murderer, as a liar, as an adulterer. And yet, in Psalm 51, if you have your Bibles open, you can look it up. Psalm 51, he humbles himself before the Lord, and he cries out to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Create in me a clean heart, O God. It goes on and on. The whole psalm is probably one we should read every day. So you will know daily what it is to humble yourself before the Lord. And then, other than maturity, he makes an interesting statement about those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And you know what he says about them? Their God is their stomach. My wife will tell you, I always know where my next meal is coming from. I do. I I don't know what it is about the Andersons. Well, my brother became president of the National Restaurant Association, so he just claimed the obsession, but I sort sort of try to hide it and just say, well, honey, what's for dinner tonight, you know? But think about that. Their God is their stomach. Now, think about it this way. What in terms of alcohol? If a person has to come home from work and feels the need for a drink or needs a drink at bedtime to relax and go to sleep, or every social encounter needs to be lubricated with a drink, then your God is your stomach. I heard John Huffman tell the story once. I think it was Louis Evans Sr., pastor at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, And this is the story he told. A woman in Dr. Evans' Hollywood church came to him, and she said, Pastor Evans, I can't come to church here anymore, to the 11 o'clock service. My favorite service, I love your church, but my husband has read the Bible, and he's determined that a husband always has authority over the wife. And my husband has told me that he needs a hot meal on the table at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning, and I won't be able to come to worship because that's the time of the service what should I do? And Dr. Evans said, my dear, your husband's belly is his God. He needs to also read the rest of Ephesians, which says, husbands, you are to love your wives as you do your own bodies. That's Christ loved the church. And you tell your husband that if she's going to be the best wife she can be for him, then she's going to have to be in worship. But you tell him this, you'll fix a meal and you'll put it in the fridge or in the oven and he can warm it up or cook it or whatever needs to be done before he leaves for the ballpark around noon. Now that seems unbelievable. Because God is his stomach. And then you have those whose... Concern is their shame. They boast about it, don't they? The vile language. I had an English teacher, Dorothy Bennett, at Belvedere High School, and she used to get on some of us for using, for overusing the word really. Do you remember that? It's a really good show. I really enjoyed it. I really had a good time. 
She would be appalled that people have now inserted an expletive for that word. And people brag about it. I mean, we've been in public situations. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe that people now use that vile language and seem to gloat about it. How shameful is that? Or perhaps some man who brags about success he's had in business. Well, what are the rest of the employees doing? Or what is his wife thinking? And what are some of the children thinking? That their dad is basically a workaholic and absent from home. And then the other concern is when God is seen as one who cannot possibly meet your needs because you're so caught up in human things, earthly things. Make a list sometime of all the important things in your life and then go back over your list and tick them off as to which of these things can I take to heaven with me? And that'll tell you what's important. Let me close with this story. I shared with you Abraham Lincoln, and somebody will say to me, well, but Pastor Abraham Lincoln was innately a great person. Did you know he only had a first-grade education? And he didn't have ghostwriters for his speeches. He worked diligently. I'm told when he went to church at the Pigeon Creek Hardshell Baptist Church when he was a kid, after the service was over, he'd go back to the cabin and he'd stand on a tree stump and literally regurgitate and impersonate the preacher. Obviously, it helped his gift of elocution. Thursday, December 1st, 1955. A tailor's assistant, a seamstress, got on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. In those days, there was a seated segregation ordinance. The white passengers were to sit in the first 10 rows and the blacks, row 11 and beyond. But if there were not enough seats for the whites, then the blacks would have to move to accommodate the white passengers. Rosa Parks got on the bus that day. The next stop, six white people got on. She was sitting in the 11th row, and the bus driver got up, pointed his finger at her, and said, you get up. And she wouldn't do it. She said, even I surprised myself. I was a very timid person. And I decided this is one of those moments not to take that step. Move. Just sit. And she did. She was arrested. She was incarcerated. But because of one woman's courageous effort, a mature Christian who was a person who could say, do as I do, follow my example. This woman started something, imagine, a seamstress, not an Abraham Lincoln, a tailor's assistant. She started a whole movement which forced the United States of America to deal with racial inequality. I'm not sure Dr. King could have even imagined how this thing would have played out. But this is what happened on Monday, December 5th. Dr. King addressed African Americans at Holt Street Baptist Church. And he said, who 
can doubt the height of character of Rosa Parks? Who can doubt the depth of her Christian commitment? Who can doubt her devotion to the teachings of Christ? And that day was the beginning of the boycott of segregated seating in Montgomery, Alabama. Nine, excuse me, 11 months later, November 13th, the United States Supreme Court declared that segregated seating ordinance in Montgomery, Alabama was unconstitutional. And that set off a firestorm. Black churches were bombed. Pastors' homes were bombed. But four days before Christmas, on December 21st, that's when integrated busing began in Montgomery, Alabama. Because of one Christian woman who did the right thing. Not somebody we would perceive as innately great, but she did it because she carried a passport as a citizen of heaven, not just a citizen of the United States of America. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul said. And this woman then went on to receive the Martin Luther King Nonviolent Peace Award, Ebony Magazine's recognition for being the greatest living American to advance civil rights causes. And in 1984, at the age of 71, she went to South Africa to join the protest of apartheid. Now, I shared with you two extreme examples of Christian leadership. But before you leave today, you need to make an important decision. Very quickly, six decisions. You need to decide which path are you going to follow. Is it going to be the path of heaven where God has promised you that you will be raised on that day and you will receive a new body? Or will you follow the path of destruction? Those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, their destiny is destruction. Two paths. And then there's two powers. Which will you choose? Will you choose the power, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit? Or will you choose the power of your bodily appetites? Two paths, two powers, two lifestyles. Will you choose a lifestyle where you desire to be a part of the great fellowship of sharing in the sufferings of Christ? Or will you continue a hedonistic lifestyle of comfort and ease? Two paths, two powers, two lifestyles, two gods. Will you give your life to the God who received, who manifested himself in the name of Jesus, or will you follow the God of your stomach? The fifth choice is what will your attitude be? Will you desire an intimate, personal friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ, or will you live your life as an enemy of the cross of Christ? And finally, for whom will you be ambitious? Will you be ambitious for the Lord Jesus Christ, 
or will you be ambitious for your own self-centered lifestyle? The Apostle Paul says, I've changed my ambitions. I am now Jesus-centered. Will you join me? Shall we pray? Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, it was Abraham Lincoln who said, we cannot escape history. We will be remembered in spite of ourselves. We hold the power and bear the responsibility in helping our neighbor to wholeness and freedom. We assure wholeness and freedom for ourselves. So shall we nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. This I believe, and I remain your obedient servant. Lord, you've given us an opportunity to be on a great journey with you, to mature in all things, but especially in our relationship with you, which doesn't just involve spiritual victories, but great humility and evidence of repentance. And can we say, as the Apostle Paul did, do as I do, Follow my example. And he's not bragging because we know he's humble now. And he reminded us today, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.